0: There's a gross disparities in how the war on drugs was applied across our country.
1: Now we're fighting against years of brainwashing. A 16-year-old
0: lad
2: apprehended in the act of staging a holdup. 16 years
0: old and a marijuana addict. Meanwhile, warfighters in my community are killing themselves at a rate of 22 a day. All this
1: stuff, its it's... It made me feel like a complete piece of shit. I didn't want to live, you know what I mean? So we need academia to embrace it. We need our politicians to embrace it. We
0: need our physician community to embrace it so that the patients win at the end of the day.
2: The Uplife is a production of The Unprescribed Nonprofit. This show is made possible by contributions from supporters just like you. Subscribe to our channel and follow us on social. We are The Unprescribed, and now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Uplife, the show that inspires us to live life to its fullest. I'm your host, Steve Elmore, founder of the Unprescribed Nonprofit.
0: Hello, and I'm Sharisa. I am the CEO and founder of Weed Decode.
2: Today, we're joined by Whitney Beatty, founder of Josephine and Billy's. Whitney is a social equity license holder and founder of a unique dispensary in LA that recognizes two Hollywood starlets who are racially targeted and blacklisted for the use of cannabis today we'll learn how they were able to work through the adversity and extra hurdles as Black women entering an industry dominated by rich white males. Whitney, thanks for joining us. We're excited to
1: have you. Thank you so much for having me today.
2: Just a, a little background. The reason why we're doing this is, um, is trauma is trauma and um, we're both disabled vets and I'm a chronic PTSD, anxiety sufferer, and um, I just want to inspire others not to give up no matter what stops them. So I appreciate your patience and understanding and no worries. So thank you for ha- having me get through the humps. <laughs> so with that, with, with real life, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for joining us. And and I, you have a really inspirational story to share with us. And I'd really like to hear more about your background and, and who you are and, and what you do and, and where, where you came from.
1: Sure. I'm more than happy to share. So my background is actually um, a lot different than most people in the cannabis space. I actually came from the entertainment industry. I used to work in entertainment for 15 years. Um, my last job was as a senior vice president of development over at Warner Brothers Telepictures. I developed daypart part syndication and reality TV programming. Um, So and and went to school for that, I have my master's in film production, Mm -hmm. Uh, so definitely not cannabis, Um, but you know, as we talk about trauma and anxiety and those sort of things that bring us to the plant. I actually had that situation happen to me. I was working in the entertainment industry. This was early on in my career when I was still trying to um, build myself up. Um, it's another space where um, there's not a ton of diversity, not a lot of women of color. And I was really trying to build up my career. Um, and so I was putting in, you know, putting in the work. We're doing 16-hour days, 18-hour days. I'm story producing. I'm APing on the overnight so I can come in and do d- development work in the daytime. And I had a situation where I was sitting at my desk where I started I started feeling heart palpitations, um, cold sweats, um, pain radiating down my uh, side, um, could not breathe. Um, I thought I was having a heart attack. I I thought I was dying. And it was one of those situations also where I'm in a busy office and I was like, oh, my God, if I have the ambulance come here, this is going to really hurt my career. So I just I didn't say a word to anybody. I grabbed my keys. I walked outside. I drove myself to the UCLA Medical Center, which was probably like five minutes away. I left my car where the ambulance is parked because I figured, hey, if I'm dead, you know what? They can tow my car. Have that. Um, And I walked in and I told them I was having a heart attack. Um, and you know when you tell them that they rush you to the back. Um, so you know they're walking past the people with the stab wounds and like you know because I'm about to die. Um, and they put me to uh, on the EKG machine and they're like, "Lady, you're not having a heart attack. You're having an anxiety attack." Mm. And I was like, "Well, that's not even possible because I'm a Type A personality." <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but they're like, "No, lady, you're having an anxiety attack." Um, and it changed the game for me. Mm. Number one, I had no idea that anxiety. Could be so physical. It's not like I I think people think that it's some sort of mind game or, or right. what have you. But when those things are happening to you, they are happening to you. Right. Hard, like I'll right now.
2: My right now, what we're talking about is exactly why we just opened up. We were the show was late. I thought it was my fault because the Zoom's not working. I'm panicking. Right. And so, oh my God, so we can totally connect. Oh, I'm,
1: oh, right, been there, done that, spent the time in the ER for it on <laughs> <Yeah>. multiple occasions. <laughs> and my um,
2: you know, heart attack, so it's hereditary. I mean, it could oh, be.
1: It, it really, I mean, it scared the crap out of me. Yeah. And I was like, how am I supposed to live with this that can come on out of nowhere um, and really take you down at the knees? And I think that people that don't experience really think that it's, you know, oh, you're just stressed out, oh, just calm down. And none of those things mean anything when you're in that moment and your heart is, I can't say, oh, heart, I'm sorry, you know, mm-hmm. this this is a, a panic um, response from the body. Like, this, it's a real thing that you have to deal with. Um, and I was still, you know, late 20s at the time. Yeah. And so the doctors tried to put me on a lot of different drugs that I didn't like, the Lexapro's, the Welbutrin's, all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't love any of them. Mm-hmm. And I was also really worried about the idea that I was still, pre- you know, pretty young and I was going to have to take drugs for the rest of my life. Yep, I didn't like that at all. Um, And so as I keep going back to the doctor and telling her, I don't like this, I don't like this. She's like, finally, in an offhand comment, she was like, well, have you thought about, you know, weed? And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> <I'll hurt> you. <laughs> you know, because for me, she could have been saying, you know, have you tried methamphetamines? Yeah. You know, do you like crack cocaine? Because for me, it was drugs is drugs is drugs. I grew up as a child. Um, in Detroit in the eighties, mm-hmm. in the middle of the war on drugs, Nancy Reagan told me to say no to drugs. I believe you. <laughs> I didn't think Nancy yep. Reagan was a liar like that. Yeah. So <laughs> I had always had a healthy fear of all drugs. Um, I had tried cannabis once in college, and I got paranoid, and I was like, I'm never doing that again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, this woman is not. She is. She is trying to put me on drug drugs. Right. Um, but I went home, and then I started thinking about it. Um, and I was like, well, let me just look into it. And I did my research on two hands. Um, on one hand, I looked at the plant and I started learning about, um, CBD and THC and the entourage effect. And then I'm learning about terpenes and I'm learning, um, you know, about all these effects. And I was able to find a cannabis regimen that was able to pull me off of those medications, right. which was huge for me, um, and learning, you know, uh, all the things about the plant that, that smoking cannabis or using cannabis um is not always about the euphoric high you know i can use cannabis and not have a euphoric high i can use cannabis in a different time of the day and go for that euphoric high it can be medicinal and it can be recreational and being able to navigate that in my own world Um, but what i think is most important um for me and for a lot of people is me learning why i felt so negatively you know where do these negative feelings come from and I had to then go back and really dig, you know, I, I, I'm a college kid or whatever. I was like, let me understand, um, because a lot of people can t- say, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. And I'm always like, oh, those people are nuts. Um, but with cannabis, it was 100 percent B.S. All the things that I thought, all the things that I knew. We're incorrect. I mean, I'm going back and I'm learning that so two women were using cannabis and childbirth in the 1400s. I'm learning about, um, you know, the birth of the nation and how slaves were used not just to, you know, harvest cotton, but they were used to pick cannabis and harvest cannabis crops and eat and um, whereas cotton was what they considered gang work where everyone was working together. Mm-hmm. Um, cannabis was task based work, which meant that they needed to go get 30 pounds today. But if they brought in 60 pounds today, they would get paid on the overages and people, slaves were able to buy their own freedom based on the overages of cannabis that they were able to, to harvest. Mm -hmm. I learned about, you know, um, Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was the first person to ever have a cannabis tincture. Um, He patented the cannabis tincture. He was a free black man black slave um you know i learned about uh harry anslinger um which really (laughs) kind of changed for me harry anslinger as the you know head of the federal Bureau of narcotics was responsible for um you know where we are right now um for this prohibition he went to 30 different doctors and asked them you know is cannabis you know dangerous and 29 said no It is not. It is more widely used than Tylenol. We use it for all sorts of ailments. Um, And one said, yeah. And he was like, going with that guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was deeply rooted in racism. I mean, this is a man who said reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. This is a man who said there are 100,000 marijuana smokers in the U.S. and most of them are Negroes, Filipinos um, and musicians. (laughs) Devil music um, makes, uh, you know, white women want to sleep with black. Negroes. Yeah. Which, yeah, like,
2: which is actually a quote i have in my film unprescribed i don't know if you know cheryl murray powell but she she has that statement about oh, it really? we bring reefer madness into the whole picture in there and this is all propaganda i mean it's all been taught to us so that we can go after one race so we can target them for something and that today it even goes into the criminology and that's oh, why they use target black men and women solely for that when they use no more than the average white person does.
1: It's it's absolutely absurd when you really look at the facts of everything, how deeply rooted in racism this was. And when you got a good friend like, you know, William Hurst, who's going who owns all the right. papers and can publish this reefer madness yep. and really change a narrative. He literally changed the narrative for plant medicine that has been used for 3,000 years that was more widely used than Tylenol. And right. all of a sudden it is prohibited and the people who use it are evil. Um, that is insane to me. Um, so once you can wrap your head around that, it's like, what am I afraid of? What there's, there's, you know, it kind of dissolved all of that for me. Um, but it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work trying to find that research and, uh, and understanding and, and getting it from sources that I knew and trusted. It was a lot of work trying to figure out what plant worked for me. And so when the opportunity came in the city of Los Angeles to do um, uh, something like uh, social equity, I was like, this is my opportunity to allow people who are like me um, to have an opportunity to learn this Better, faster, quicker, um, more clearly than I did. Can I build a dispensary that gives people, you know, the information that they need in order to destigmatize that that history, that learning, um, and also allows them to, um, you know, have a better understanding of the plant? Um, and that was always the dream. And as I was thinking about these things, I actually listened to a podcast that was talking about um, Josephine Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, and people always ask, you know, where the name Josephine and Billy's come from. You know, um, it, the name pays homage to Josephine Baker and Billie Holiday because they were two women of color who were persecuted for their cannabis consumption. Yep. And yet they used their art to fight against injustice and they rejected the mainstream and they wrote their own rules. And more importantly, they held the door open for other women who were coming after them. Absolutely. And that is goals. I mean, what we know for sure is that Hanslinger had it personally out. Yep. Mm-hmm. billy holiday no yep. he, he was did. gunning for her personally he pulled yep. her cabaret card he made yep. her life a living miserable yep. like absolutely terrible yeah um because he, you know, cause also he was a racist yep. and he, what he didn't appreciate the fact is that she was going up to the North and singing strange fruit and telling everybody that they're lynching, they're lynching black people down there. Yep. <laughs> and you know, when you're not hearing that other places and this woman singing these devastatingly sad songs, oh, yeah. he's like, she has got to shut go. up. <laughs> and she was like, I don't care. I'm not going to stop. Yeah. You know, you can pull my cabaret card, which at that time said that she can't sing anywhere. She can't perform anywhere. It really shut her down at the knees. And yet she just didn't stop. Yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, incredibly, you know, inspiring to me. And, you know, Josephine Billy, this, I mean, Josephine Baker the same way. Um, and I absolutely respect the for her. She was like, you know what? This country is not serving me anymore. I'm out. You know, I'm going to France because this is absolutely insane. Um, so to see such strong women um, and as we enter a legal market and, um, you know, rec legalization um, for the the plant, I felt like if I wanted a space that especially was going to be a safe space for women and women of color, I should pay homage to the women who led the way and who were, you know, they've been recognized for a lot of things, but not for that.
0: Yeah. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for telling us your story and how you came to be to this point. I, I must say, I'm, I'm really inspired by it. And I am a Josephine Baker, Billie Holiday fan. And for you guys to name your dispensary and paying homage to her, I think that's so important for people that look like us. Uh, For women that look like us. So I appreciate you guys doing that. Um, I want to focus now on um, how you overcame that stigma, right? Because you you had what most people were told, which is, oh, the plant is bad, don't do drugs. You know, I'm from the South. I'm Baptist, I'm a nurse, I'm military. So I never touched the plant because of that stigma and because I really couldn't. And when I got out the military, I also had that thought, you know, I can't do this because I'm taking drugs. So how did you decide to go against the norm go against what you were taught go against you know what most people are out here struggling with which is that stigma what what did you do to overcome that
1: it, for me it was really education you know it is how you know understanding where it came from uh allowed me to unwind it um and for us at the store uh You know what that looks like in practice is that in our store we have a huge history of cannabis timeline that spans a wall that starts in the 1400s and goes all the way to to today and we're talking about um, you know, all of these, um, you know, key points, how often cannabis is used and Harry and slinger and then the war on drugs and so we can talk our way through um, and be able to overcome some of those objections, especially when I'm talking to um, an older generation, yeah. um, and especially an older generation of people of color when your community has been decimated. By the war on drugs when you've seen people go to jail when you've seen uh, families torn apart you see them come out of jail without opportunities and you know the recidivism rate becomes high after you have spent time because you can't get services you can't get. um, Assistance you can't get aid, jobs don't want to hire you all of those things, it makes people even more reticent to try the plan I saw what that did to everyone else around here you're not going to get me yeah and yet. I still need to be able to talk to those people because plant medicine makes a huge difference. What we know for sure in our community is that women are more stressed than men and women of color are the most stressed cohort out there. And yet we have the least access to healthcare. When we do have access to healthcare, the doctors are not listening to us. When the doctors do listen to us, we don't have the coverage to get the medicine that they are putting out there. So it's incredibly important that you have a place within your community that is affordable, that is giving plant medicine you know in in a safe um and um secure way we and which is why also we make sure that we carry not just you know flour and pre rolls but i need to make sure that i have tinctures that i have creams that i have bath bombs that i have soaking salts i have all the things for no matter what type of um, you know, customer comes in because my 60 plus, my 70 plus customers, a lot of times they're like, I don't want to smoke. Yeah. Okay. Let me give you this bath salt. Okay. Let me give you this tincture. Let me talk to you about how you can use this, um, you know, 30 to one, which is not going to give you this euphoric high, but it will be able to help you with that arthritis pain and that bursitis pain and be able to, you know, use this cream. All of those options are incredibly important. Um, and it's incredibly important that they are able to be delivered safely, um, and at an affordable price point in order to be able to change hearts and minds about the the plant in general
0: so did you have any fear when you jumped from Hollywood if you will to into the cannabis space did you have any fear when you decided to take that jump and how did you overcome that fear
1: I'm like, number one, you know, it's one of those things where you, going back to the idea of stigma, yeah. um, it, I tell people it's kind of like a, a coming out process when I had to like go and tell my mom, yeah, I'm going to yeah. go and I'm going to work, you know, in the cannabis space. I see opportunity there. And she's All like, right. you know, you got these three degrees <laughs> and now you're going to be a drug dealer. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> Have you uh, we we sent you to college? I don't know what's wrong with you now. Um, so being able to have those conversations with important people in my life and tell them why I thought that it was important, and it's important because you know plant medicine medicine is important. Being able to hear it from people that reflect you is important. Um, and it also you know if this was the end of prohibition and someone said, Hey Whitney, do you want to start Jack Daniels? I would say, Hell yeah, I want to start Jack Daniels. <laughs> um, you know, at that point in time, this is a huge burgeoning industry that is is slated to be a $75 billion space. Um, And people who look like me, um, who paid the ultimate price generally um, during the war on drugs, communities of color were disproportionately disenfranchised by that war on drugs. And in legalization, we are not participating. Um, You know, less than 2% of licensed businesses in the cannabis space are black owned. Uh, It's incredibly important that we show up here in this space and we help shape what you know? What this looks like? We can't have an industry where you know Chad has a dispensary on every corner and Jamal remains in prison. You know, we have to be able to change some of these dynamics, and it, it is really important that we have people who have skill sets from other spaces coming into that cannabis space um, and being able to bring new ideas.
2: Actually, well, actually, we we do need to pause for a commercial break. But when we come back, Teresa has some more to follow up on that, and I do want to talk about moving forward to today and and talking about legalization and expungement because prior to you coming on the show and one of the reasons we asked you to join us was because uh, we had Stephanie Shepherd with the Last Prisoner Project on it and she mentioned your story specifically based on the racial history behind it and you're telling us that exact story right now so we want to share this with our audience and take it deeper to where you're where you're where you're taking that in your advocacy today will you stick around for us absolutely absolutely thank you All right, and we're back. So thank you for joining us again, Whitney. We left off on a great discussion talking about uh, legalization and the illegalization of cannabis and how it's affecting the Black community. And I believe Sharisa was about ready to go in with a question for you. So continue.
0: Yeah, Whitney, were you ever concerned about being in the industry that was predominantly white and white males? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what was that concern? I mean, you you are a strong black woman and so to have the background that you have, have the degrees that you have, why were you concerned about
1: that? Um, you know it- it's number one, um, I think that's important in any industry or any space that you see other people that look like you, that reflect you, that allow you to know that you can make it uh, to that next level. Um, and so that you know, when I continued, especially when I came into this space, um, I was the only you know brown female face that I was seeing in these rooms. And so that made me nervous. I also, you know, cannabis is a space when you're trying to work within it, um, especially as an entrepreneur, um, funding is incredibly important. Fundraising is incredibly important. Um, And the numbers were not very positive if you will if you look (laughs) at the data on you know black women being able to get these businesses funded we can't go to the bank of america i can't go down to wells fargo and say hey can i get a small business loan i'm opening a dispensary we're still federally illegal so we're in a space where we are required the only opportunities for cash come from angel investors or vcs angel investors tend to be um older white men, um, you know, between 40 and 60, and they tend to invest in people that remind them of themselves. And very few of them saw themselves Mm. as a 40 year old, you know, single mother. Hmm, (laughs) look at that. So I'm like that becomes really hard and people of color um, and especially black people tend to not have those people within their networks and a lot of these things go from referrals so it becomes even harder when you're getting you know you're doing a cold introduction to somebody and they're like we don't know you, we don't know what you're about, and I'm not about to give you money. Um, So you have got a lot more to overcome when you're coming from that direction um, at it. And then the other side is VC money. Uh, Venture capital uh, firms are giving 2% of their money to female-led businesses and 0.0006% to black female led businesses. The average black female who's out fundraising raises $30,000 for the business and the average white male uh, raises 1.3 million. That is a huge disparity. yeah. Especially when you're talking about the cannabis space, which is incredibly, um, you know, uh, it's, it's cash hungry. I mean, everything I need to do takes money, mm-hmm. I, you know, in order to get the license in order to do compliance in order to do security and all the things need um, a good chunk of change and it becomes very difficult and um, to raise that money, and especially and even if you do raise some money is it enough to complete compete with the MSOs who are, you know, have raised twenty million dollars, thirty million dollars and have the money to burn when you're sitting here with the two hundred thousand dollars you raised hoping to be able, you know to compete with these, these businesses becomes incredibly difficult. And that's why we're seeing within the space, it was funny, you know, back in when I entered about 2015, they said that there was more female CEOs in the cannabis space than any other industry. And I was like, yeah, go girl or whatever. And that number has been sinking like a stone ever since. Um, why know, do you think that is? Uh, with- oh, I, it's absolutely the money. Absolutely. If the females aren't getting funded, but these male-led you know, led entities are, they have the resources that we do not. We can be drowned out. We can be uh, drummed out. You can out-advertise me. You can out-buy me. You can outperform me. Just like because politics. Because you have that visibility that I do not. And so these women-led businesses are crumbling under the pressure because they cannot compete with someone who's sitting on $15 million and doing, you know, a million dollars a month on weed maps and ad play.
0: Yeah. So but you're here now. So how did you overcome that? I mean, you're you you said you started in 2015. So you obviously did something, right? You had the a formula that worked. So what was that formula?
1: I'm stubborn as hell. <laughs> that's, that's the formula. I'm yeah. <laughs> like the best way to get me to do something is to tell me that I cannot. Yeah. Um, because I'm like, "To hell! Who are you? You're not the boss of me. I I can do whatever I want." Yeah. And um, that is the attitude that I, you know, I came in with. Because even though, and I talk all the time about how difficult it is, and it yeah. is difficult. Yeah. Do it anyway. Yeah, do it anyway. Call that investor anyway, chase that VC anyway, because all of those things are incredibly important that we actually do this work, that we actually have a place within, you know, this industry. And so I understood that I was going to have to dance harder. I was going to have to move faster. I was going to have to overperform in order to be seen as an equal um, or even close to some of these other people. And I was like, I'm willing to do that. I'm going to back up everything that I say with data. I'm going to have, you know, information points because, um, you know, every time uh, i'm gonna get I get these sort of pushbacks, you know my first company in the cannabis space was um a ancillary company um and josephina and Billy started in um uh in earnest in two thousand eighteen mm-hmm. um so I've seen it on both sides um from the ancillary side and the um the plant touching side that it's you know it's incredibly hard to go out there, but you have to you have to commit that you know you can get it done. And for us, it was one of those things where I, initially I had a VC partner who was going to come in with everything, and I was like, I don't have to raise money for Josephine and Billys, and thank God because I don't like raising money; it's a lot of work, <laughs> um, or what have you. Um, and what ended up happening was that VC went under, and I sat down with a couple of colleagues of mine who are good friends, and they, they were like, you know, you could match up with another, you know, MSO or someone else, and um, but we have all the skills within ourselves to get this done. We all consult within the space, we all work within the space. How come we can't just do this ourselves? Um, and that's how I got paired up and started um and brought on my business partner, um, Ebony, and you know, I had convinced her that, you know, this is the thing because what I was getting before from the investors that I'd even talked to casually was. You know, no one cares about women of color, nobody cares about them within this industry, you Mm -hmm. need to sell general cannabis for general people, and we're not spending money on on this crazy idea. Um, But I really you know I from my time in the entertainment industry I think that I have a real affinity for niche markets. you know, I'm I'm very much want to target a demographic and obviously, you know, even with Josephine and Billy's, you know, we've got white guys that come in, we've got, you know, black guys that come, we've got people from right. all over, but to be able to build with that lens, what I learned is that, you know, all these people can enjoy the things that we're, we're giving um, to the community, but it's a different sort of lens and it's a different way to look at, um, look at things. So for our store, when we're talking about what does that lens look like in practice in um, a Josephine and Billy's, you know, it's having our store designed by terpene profile instead of talking about sativa and indica because those are terrible ways to determine how the can. That's can't a
2: lazy a bud therapy. tender's excuse right there.
1: Exactly, you know, it's, it's absolutely are, yeah. lazy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So do the work, talk to these people about the terps. Let's talk, you know, people, when you walk in the door, Um, you know, we're a speakeasy, um, where we're a teapad, pad, which I explain as a speakeasy because most people don't know what a teapad pad is. Teapads pads were places in the twenties and thirties where people of color would come together, smoke cannabis, listen to music, um, and connect. And you would find your literary greats and your singers and your poets, um, and your activists all in one space. And we really liked the idea of being able to be that for a community. So you come into a space that looks like a, a Euro, um, you know, uh, smoke shop, and you have to use a code word, a password, Billy sent me yep. and that gets yep. you entrance behind this, um, you know, curtain into a whole new space. Yep. Um, and you get to see our, you know, turp bar where you can smell the, the smells of different terpenes when you come in. Um, my, you know, uh, staff will ask you, you know, are you here for healing? Or are you here for a good time? Because though you can have both with cannabis. But if you let us know what you're looking for, it helps us direct how you're going to feel what we know for sure in this industry is, is that because of genetics, there are very, very, very few true sativas or true indicas, almost everything Absolutely. is I'm, hybrid. So I'm, much better way to determine how cannabis is gonna make you feel comes down to terpenes. And so we look at the terpene profile, everything that comes in and we're splitting them up into the top five terps. So if you come in and you're telling me that you're looking to relax, I can take you over to a mirror scene wall yeah, yeah. Um, that says relax over it. And I can talk to you about that. And then you might be able to see, you know, a, another strain that you really love, um, you know, there and you know that all the strains around that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, are going to give you a a similar feeling the same with, you know, beta carophylline and our uh, relief or limonene and uplifting, Um, being able to see those things In practice, we also have um, product labels on our um, products that, you know, we have a champagne glass rating system where it's, you know, one champagne glass for your two milligram, you know, can of can um, where you're going to have, you know, whatever five champagne glasses for that concentrate that's in the refrigerator. So people who are new consumers have some sort of you know, idea of what their consumption level is. Because if this was the end of prohibition, we'd have to have conversations with people about, hey, do I drink a gallon of tequila or do I drink a shot glass of tequila? We need to have those same conversations, um, you know, with our customers coming in. And especially when we're talking to women, because women wanna know, how is this gonna affect me? How's it gonna make me feel? How's it gonna make my life better? They have those questions. And so we have to jump in and give them the answers. We have, you know, the THC percentage there. Um, But we also have the terpene percentage because that, to me, has a much better effect on how that plant is going to affect you and how it's going to make you feel. We don't all go to the bar and drink moonshine all day because it has the highest alcohol content. So why on earth are we walking into a dispensary and saying, I want the strain that has the highest THC content? That is just a dumb way to look at this. I
2: found it personally (laughs) as as a medical patient, as an anxiety sufferer, that's exactly... I'm finding a, a decline in the industry and in bud tenders and education and not actually knowing what they're talking about. So I'm really just they don't know bringing what they're talking
1: all about. this in. A lot of them
2: don't. <laughs> when I walk in and I'm, and I'm concerned about um, recreational versus medical and, 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 the, and the fact that they're breeding out CBD and things like that. And so when I walk into a dispenser and I do find a new bud tender and he's not quite tracking me, I tell him, okay, Give me, tell me what you have with the highest terpene level to start with. And we'll go from there because they're usually, you know, it's, there's so many hybrids. Some and me- of them
1: don't even know what a terpene, what the terpene levels are, right. which is, you know, it, that sort of stuff breaks my heart. We, no. I teach a class every other week called tea and terpenes. Um, right. And I teach it in the back. We have a lounge in the store. We have that space in order to be able to have classes. So I teach this class and I tell you, you know, at least, um, half of that class, um, a a lot of times ends up being other people within the industry because they don't know this information. Oh, I'm a butt tender over here. I'm a butt tender over there. And they're coming to take this class with me because they're not familiar Mm -hmm. with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's incredibly important that we have butt tenders, they are the first line of defense. They're yep. the people that, you know, are, are the face of our brands, and they are the ones who are interacting with our customers and telling our customers what to expect. So if I've got a young kid who's just telling you about that fire, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, I'm a mom, I don't always need that fire, I need, you know, to be able to have levels to this. And I need <laughs> when my kid says that I'm on fire to be able to get up and help him. So like, <laughs> give me, I'm like, <laughs> show me where the five milligrams are. <laughs> Exactly. as long with the 100 milligrams <laughs> we got to have levels to this yeah um and so that becomes incredibly important that we focus on making sure that we're giving the best information out there. Obviously everyone's is different yeah. um, and all those sort of things. But if you have a good baseline of understanding about the cannabis space, about, you know, the plant and how it works with you, about the entourage effect and about your endocannabinoid system, um, that is a good place to start.
0: And hey Whitney, I, I, w- I just want to ask you this. Why are you so passionate about, This industry and what you bring not only to um, entrepreneurs but women of color. Why are you so passionate about that? I
1: think it feels personal. I think it feels personal to me. Um, You know, I I am a um, you know a cannabis seller and I'm also a cannabis user. Um, And I came to this plant and you know because I was having a health issue and it yeah. was really able to change my life. And I want to be able to give that to other people. And I also wanna be able to make a difference within my community. Yeah. Um, you know, And I think that that's incredibly important too. Like I said, there's 2% of licensees um, in this space are Black um, and yet, you know, we are depending on where you live, four to 11 times more likely to be arrested for this plant, um, more likely to be harassed for this plant. um, And I want my community to be able to get the benefits of that plant medicine, and I know that it really makes a difference when you come in and you can see other people that reflect you yeah. um, in the bud tenders in the ownership. Um, in the way in which we curate product and what okay. we offer, all of those things become incredibly important and also to be able to, um, as they say, buy b- back the block. Yeah. I could have had my dispensary anywhere within the city of Los Angeles. I chose to be on MLK in South Los Angeles, um, just south of USC, because that's a community that um, that I want to serve. Yeah. That's a community that deserves to be able to have safe plant medicine that they can walk to and not have to drive across town to get. Um, that has concerns for pricing because, you know, yeah, you can go to a large MSO and find your $50, $60 dollars but my community can't afford that all the time. Where's the $18 dollars ace? Where's that $15 eighth? Yeah. Where's that, you know, $7 joint? Where's that tincture that's only $15 instead of $75? Um, being able to offer those things within my community and see people walk in and say, oh my God, this place is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, why would you build something so beautiful here? Um, and it always makes me cry a little bit because it's like, because we deserve it. Yeah, Our community deserves beautiful things. Yeah. Our community deserves education. Mm-hmm. Our community also deserves to see other people that look like them um, using cannabis in best practices and enjoying it and not having it feel criminal.
0: Yeah. What impact are you seeing in the community? Are people like gravitating to your dispensary and just want to learn more, become bud tenders, want to be entrepreneurs? What impact are you seeing?
1: I mean, we we see impact on all, all sides. I mean, you know, it always touches me every time I see um, a, a, a customer who brings in their mom for the first time or their grandmother for the first oh. time or their aunties for the first time and say this is the first time I felt comfortable bringing oh God, you know awesome. my older family member <laughs> to a dispensary and letting them experience this and being able to you know um, sell them, you know, lotions and creams and things, and having them come back and say, you know, I've never had such relief for this arthritis or, you know, uh, for the other things that I am uh, suffering, or when I'm having classes and where, you know, sitting in our circle and talking and having women who say, you know, I use cannabis but I don't feel comfortable telling anybody in my life, mm-hmm. and so being able to sit here and share these stories and learn more and feel like I'm in a group that is reflective of me because let's be honest, what you see when you're talking about cannabis consumers on the radio, I mean, on um, television and movies, what are we? We're, we're bad kids who are not motivated. We're behind the gym. Mm -hmm. Our lives are going downhill and we don't see it. But when you're sitting in that room, learning about cannabis, I've got nurses there. I got doctors there. I got lawyers there. I've got, you know, uh, agents there. I got people that you respect and look up to in every other space of your life. And those things become much more reflective like, oh, You know, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. This this is okay. I can hold my head up a little bit higher because you know it's still a world where moms are cool to you know to drink vodka and wine. It's cool if you want to pop pills all day, but if you're smoking a joint and you're a mom, you are evil and bad. Um, And so I need (laughs) these women to be able to see. You know, I'm a mom. I am. You know, I'm a college graduate. I. Like to think that I'm a pretty good person, and I consume <laughs> cannabis all the time, yes. and I am okay with that, and I refuse to let you feel guilty <laughs> because I, want, I refuse to let me feel guilty.
2: <laughs> I want to tag on to one of our last conversations when we had Stephanie here on the show, and she bring up a, a this group of of housewives, these moms who smoke weed, and it's all glamorized and things today. But in the meantime, there's still people incarcerated behind bars for something that's still deemed evil like you're saying. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you see in LA and and some of what she's speaking about and, and how mean, we can overcome this?
1: She, she's absolutely right. It's it is really hard, you know, it's hard for me to know that I can legally get up and you know um and and sell weed on a daily basis and know that people who sold weed within my community remain in jail to this day. Right. Yeah. that is absolutely patently absurd to me. Um, and that is, you know, another thing that drives stigma within our community, um, you know, because those people are still in, in, in prison. Um, you know, I have a, a, a friend who is the executive director of Supernova Women, yeah. um, Amber Center. She also works in the cannabis space. And she often says um, that before legalization, most people bought their cannabis from a black or brown person. Mm-hmm. And now, post legalization, most don't. Yeah. Um. And think about the economic sw- swing of that. Mm. Um. You know, legal or no, that's a lot of money drained out of our community. Huh. Um. That we're not seeing coming back. Because, you know, these people are still in jail and the people who are able to get these l- legal licenses are not reflective of us, nor is that money coming back into our community.
2: And most of those people behind bars were just trying to make a living, trying to make a little scratch with just selling bags and you know, dime bags. Absol- because and, it's what it it's comes harmless.
1: and it I'm turns like, out
2: it'd be t- it. And it turns out most of the people that are consuming are probably using it medicinally, even if they think they're recreating or not, because they're high. Because why do we drink? Why do we take drugs? Why do we do all these things? Because we're trying to bury that pain. There's something going on in our communities, on our streets, in our homes, in our families. And then we're being demonized for it, criminalized for it, targeted for it.
1: Absolutely. For what? And the the data backs that up. The data says that, um, I believe the number was 70%. 70% of people who consume cannabis said that because of that, they have um, reduced taking some other medication. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an an exit drug. You know, or or, you know, stop doing other things when cannabis legalization comes along. You know what happens? Alcohol sales go down. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, all of these things (laughs) are are are, are affecting each other. It really does. It makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So Whitney, let's talk about um, how it makes you feel to know that you're inspiring other women of color in this industry, right? You, you've done something that most women are probably sitting back stewing over. Man, I wanna open a dispensary. Man, I wanna do what Whitney is doing. How does it feel to know that you've done it and women are looking up to you and inspired by you?
1: Uh, you know, that's always, um... That's always wild to me because I still feel like, you know, I, I I'm still running the race. I'm still pushing a boulder uphill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often try to push myself to um, celebrate the milestones, you know, because I want to be way up here. Um, you know, so I'm always eye on the prize and they're like, but you, but you got the license, but you, but you got to open but you, You're able to raise the money um, or what have you. And so I'm super grateful for that. but. Um, to those much is given much as expected. Um, and so I have a real uh, drive to be able to help other people get to where I am and you know my greatest hope is that the people who come after me the women who have dispensers after me the women of color who open dispensers after me have an easier time of it that it is not so difficult that they don't have to jump through so many hoops that there's not so many roadblocks in their path because I was able to turn around and help someone else out and reach my hand back and at least give information and insight things I wish I knew before I started um, you know because you don't know what you don't know and so I do believe that there's a huge responsibility for us who have been able to find success in this space to do as much as we can to help the next person, whether that is, you know, I serve as um, vice president of Supernova Women. We're a 501c3 that seeks to encourage women of color to become stakeholders in the cannabis space through education, advocacy, and networking. Yeah. Um, so, and and we do a ton of advocacy um, you know, within the state of California and nationwide. We were, um, Supernova played a part in the very first social equity program that hit in Oakland, also. HELPED IN um, SAN FRANCISCO AND CONTINUES TO CONSULT. Um, WE DID ONE OF THE VERY FIRST um, uh, DEEP DIVE RESEARCH PROJECTS INTO THE EFFICACY OF THE um, Social equity and why that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should mention that social equity is the idea that communities of color have been disproportionately disenfranchised by the war on drugs and thus deserve prioritization mm-hmm. and legalization. Um, you know, making it easier for people who have been affected to get licenses.
2: I even got um, into a discussion and argument over just that subject. And we're going to have to wrap soon because we're running short on time. But the uh, I don't see it as uh, recommendations. I can't say it. Rep-
1: uh,
2: Okay, so mm-hmm. I got into an argument with with somebody about the whole um, social equity, and this was coming from a white guy who who just didn't seem it as fair. And I said I see it as evening the battlefield or leveling the playing field, because everything we just started out with this whole conversation talking about white powerful rich men who who have all that control and have all those connections. Well, you just said the people of color, black women especially, don't have all those resources, and so hello how is that not leveling the playing field how is that not feel how is that not re- making reparations for times of where everybody's been being still is being persecuted right
1: I mean, and so because it's not like they're giving out free licenses right. and they're like oh here take this two million dollars and run it into the ground even in the cities where equity is in practice uh, the vast majority of dispensary owners remain White men, Um, and even within the um, organizations that do have equity licenses and have leadership, you know, we're still partnering because we need to be able to bring in um, investment, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like people are being cut out of the space. It's giving people um, a leg up to be, you know, to have entrance into the space uh, because of how difficult it is. Without that, um, we would see even less. Uh, people of color being able to even participate, you know, it's and it's funny because people like to call it, you know, it's a type of uh, reparation, or what have you. But the thing is, is that social equity only applies to people who have plant touching licenses. Uh, That Mm -hmm. is a really narrow space. My grandmother (laughs) who lived in the city of Detroit, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, her whole life in the middle of the inner city does not want to be a license holder. that's not what her goal was never did Mm -hmm. never wanted to be a license holder how do we pay reparations for her because her neighborhood was torn apart because they weren't able to we weren't able to walk to the park because it was unsafe within Mm -hmm. the whole you know community because Mm -hmm. of the ravages of the war on drugs so when we talk about reparations coming from this space we have to talk about it on a broader scale what is the tax money looking like and how is it going to make sure that people who are coming out of prison you know have a lower recidivism rate how are we putting it back into the rec centers into the education of these kids who are the next generation how are we making sure that they have opportunities that were lost because they lost property because they were not able to build that generational wealth and we know that that's true because the average african american family has less than $10,000 of net worth mm-hmm. um that is abysmal numbers and a lot mm-hmm. of that comes from being you know redlined and being put into communities that were overpoliced um even though we know good and darn well that black people and white people use cannabis at the same rates so all of those things you know need to be done in, in order to be a full reparation pre, um, you know package something that is really going to help the community on a holistic level um, and that's what I really want to see cannabis be able to do it's nice to be able to have this company it's great to be able to know that I'm building something and hope that I'm building generational wealth for my um you know for my son but the uh, the bigger concern also becomes how do we build back our communities how yeah. do we buy back our communities um, and I think that that comes from from that ownership, from that participation and from making sure that those tax dollars are circled back into our community.
0: Absolutely. As we um, kind of wrap up here with me, I want to know what's in store for you. What are you doing next? What's what's what should we expect from you? What's on the horizon? Can you tell us about
1: that? Good question. Um, I mean, more of the same. Hopefully, uh, you know, uh, Josephine and Billy's is celebrating its first anniversary this Saturday. Um, Congratulations. Wonderful!
0: Congratulations! Thank you.
1: Um, so that's a super exciting. You know, yep. we're looking at expansion. We're looking um, definitely at the city of Los Angeles, hoping that they release these consumption lounge licenses. License oh my God, racks, that would be so awesome. That's really exciting to us to be able to build a place where people can consume together, and yes. I think you know, us thinking outside of the box about what that looks like, you know, not just sitting around smoking. How how does it look like to have a cannabis and yoga class? How does it look to have a token twerk class? How does it look to have massage you know artist there who's going to give you um you know massages with cannabis oil what does that book club look like when we're going to smoke and talk about the book club and the moms group and the uh seniors group all of those things how do we you know bring cannabis into the community in a way that feels really relatable um and so we're super excited about that and then also continuing to help Uh, other cannabis businesses grow and to really um, hope that I see more diversity within this space.
0: Do you have any encouraging words to our listeners and to our viewers about what they should be thinking about, what they should be hoping for if they decide to come into the cannabis space? Oh, what should they should be thinking
1: about? Um, (laughs) That's a hard one because, you know, the cannabis space is is large um, and um, there's just so much opportunity. I think I say for people who are interested in coming into this space, um, I think that it's critical that you bring the skills that you have um, from, the rest of your your life. So if you are a teacher, you know, come into the cannabis space and work with education. If you're an accountant, come into the cannabis space and help us with accounting. If you're a marketer, if you're an influencer, if you're a nurse, um, you know, if you're a back-end developer, come and bring those skills. Um, I think that those things translating into the cannabis space really help us. Um, I think a lot of people tend to say, oh, I'm gonna come into the cannabis space, I'm gonna become a grower. But if you can't keep a fern alive in right. your home, maybe that's not for you. <laughs> skills that you actually have and bring them in. Um, But really, I I think it's critical that people and especially women and especially people of color look at the opportunities here. This is a growing space. There's going to be more jobs in cannabis than manufacturing by 2025 says Forbes. So how can you, um, you know, come into this space and build opportunity for yourself? Uh, I think that's the way to look at it.
2: Excellent. Well, listen, uh Charissa and I are, are both veterans and we're playing around with this oath and we want to raise the hands. Usually, you usually do what raise your hand, state your name, and mm-hmm. I am fill in the blank. Yep. So you go ahead and give her the oath. Raise your right hand if you don't mind joining us in this. And we just want an empowerment message from you. That first thought that comes to mind, Sharissa, would you take the lead?
0: Yes, you'll say, um, my name is and say I'm living the up life.
2: Or do you want to fill in the blanks and I am? Yes. Fill in the blanks. I am a strong woman. Anything,
0: anything you want to say in that filling the blank part after your name. And then after that conclude by saying I'm living the up life. Okay.
1: All right. I am Whitney Beatty. I am a mother. I'm an entrepreneur. I am a trailblazer. I am a cannabis consumer and I'm living the up life.
2: Amen. Oh, thank it. you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Whitley, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your strength and wisdom with us and giving encouragement to our listeners and to our audience. And for everyone out there, we wish you peace, encouragement, and ask you to live life to the fullest. Live the up life. And that's
0: a wrap. Thank you so much, Whitney. Your story was great.
2: That's all the time we have for this episode. The Uplife is produced and directed by Steve Elmore. This show is made possible by the help of volunteers from the Unprescribed nonprofit and supporters like you. The Uplife is part of the Alive Podcast Network. Live life unprescribed. Live the Uplife. The Unprescribed Inc is a 501c3 charitable organization. You can make a tax deductible contribution by visiting theunprescribed.org/donate.html. Become a patron. Visit patreon.com/theunprescribed. And follow us on social media, at The Unprescribed.